Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Today I'm going to read two sections of Scripture from uh, Ephesians. I'm going to read verses 3 through 7 in Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Actually, I'm going to read through verse 8. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, Before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great and precious promises that you give to us in Christ, revealed to us in your word, illuminated For us, by your Holy Spirit that dwells in us by grace and grace alone. Father, we thank you that you have called us your very own, that you chose us in you before the foundations of the world. Father, may we be a people, may we be your church that shines brightly in this world that burns brightly in this world to give witness to Christ and the glorious gospel of our salvation, that men would know that there is no resource within themselves by which they may be saved, but it is by grace and grace alone that you have saved us. We thank you, Father. We thank you for that grace given to us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue to go through the five solas of the Reformation, and today we are going to look at our third sola, which is sola gratia, or grace alone. I have read to you from what's called the Cambridge Declaration, which was issued in April, on April 20th, 1996. I would like to read uh, their short uh, section here on this 
sola, we call sola gratia, or grace alone. And in this section of the Declaration, it talks about the erosion of the gospel. And I quote, Unwarranted confidence in human ability is a product of fallen human nature. This false confidence now fills the evangelical world. From the self-esteem gospel to the health and wealth gospel, from those who have transformed the gospel into a product to be sold and sinners into consumers who want to buy, to others who treat Christian faith as being true simply because it works, this silences the doctrines of justification regardless of the official commitments of our churches. God's grace in Christ is not merely necessary, but is the sole efficient cause of salvation. We confess that human beings are born spiritually dead and are incapable even of cooperating with regenerating grace. Sola gratia. We reaffirm that in salvation... We are rescued from God's wrath by His grace alone. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We deny that salvation is in any sense a human work. Human methods, techniques, or strategies by themselves cannot accomplish this transformation. Faith is not produced by our unregenerated human nature. Close quote. So today, we look at sola gratia, grace alone. Salvation is by God's grace Alone. This is the teaching of Scripture. Now, remember, we started this on Reformation Sunday, and we are looking at these five solas, and we call them the five, five solas of the Reformation. So, the doctrines of grace that came from the Reformers and came out of the Reformation, these five pillars of truth give us if you will, a summary of what the Reformation was about. And one of the pillars of the Reformation was the doctrine of God's grace, that we are saved by grace alone. And there is nothing in or of ourselves that contributes to that salvation. This is the teaching of Scripture. The reason the Reformers adopted sola gratia, or grace alone, as one of their pillars of truth was the teaching of the Church of Rome that we are not saved by grace alone, but it is grace plus other things that save us. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there are not other things that should accompany our salvation, but what I am saying is there is nothing but grace that contributes to our salvation. And I hope you understand the difference. 
The teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that we are saved through a combination of God's grace, the merits that we accumulate through penance and good works, and the excess merits of the saints before us. The Reformers were firm in their response that we are saved by God's grace alone, thus the meaning of this sola, sola gratia, grace alone. So this begs the question, is salvation by man's own goodness, the grace of God, or a combination of both? Now, before we answer that question from the Scripture, I want us to consider why this is even a question today. The short answer goes all the way back to the garden with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam's rebellion against God and the subsequent fall that took place, that fall originated from a desire to trust in his own goodness instead of God and his word. That's what Adam decided to do. He chose to trust, in essence, in his own goodness instead of in God and in God's word. Adam's sinful choice accentuated his need for God's grace. But the need for God's grace did not begin with or originate in Adam's sin. So it's not like man didn't need grace before he sinned. You understand that man himself, along with this whole creation, is a product of God's grace. So before his fall, man was already wholly dependent upon the grace of the Creator. Our struggle to recognize and submit to our absolute need for God's grace began in the garden, our struggle to recognize it, but it carries on from there to this very moment, the moment we live in today. There is a philosophy a system of thought, if you will, called humanism. <clears throat> humanism is a very general term that can mean different things to different people. And you would realize that if you did a man-on-the-street interview. It would mean all kinds of things to different people. And not all necessarily bad or evil. In a philosophical and theological sense, especially in our modern times, Humanism is largely secular in its focus upon man. Modern humanists are mostly secular in their outlook, if not rejecting God altogether. In many ways, not much has changed since man's rejection of God in the garden. Humans and humanism are both still rejecting God in their quest to rule themselves from their own human resources apart from the grace of God. So let's fast forward from the garden at creation to about the 4th or 5th century to a man named Pelagius. Pelagius is where we get the theological term Pelagianism. You may or may not know what that means, but I promise you it has impacted your life and it has impacted your theology whether you realize it or whether you know it or not. Pelagius did not believe in original sin, and he emphasized human choice over God's grace in terms of our salvation. 
I want to repeat that. Pelagian did not believe in original sin. Pelagius basically believed that man was born neutral, neither good nor bad. There are still faith traditions in Christendom, in, in Christianity, that believe children are born neutral. They're, or the way they would say it, for instance, in the Church of Christ, is children are born safe. And they're safe until they commit their first sin. That is not what the Scripture teaches. That is what Pelagian believed, though. That's what Pelagius believed. Children were basically born safe or born neutral, neither good nor bad. Augustine of Hippo, or Augustine of Hippo, greatly opposed Pelagius and his view of man, his high view of man, and his low view of God's grace in our salvation. So Pelagius had a high view of man in his salvation and a low view of God's grace. B.B. Warfield wrote concerning Augustine and the Pelagian controversy, and I quote, Pelagius, in emphasizing free will, denied the ruin of the race and the necessity of grace. Pelagius believed that man inherently possessed all that was necessary to do all that righteousness can demand, not only to work out his own salvation, but his own perfection. Now, the Bible does tell us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but nowhere in any shape or form does the Bible teach us that through our working, we can become perfect before God. But that is exactly what Pelagius believed. Pelagius himself wrote, and I quote, as we are procreated without virtue, so also without vice. Nothing that is good and evil on account of which we are either praiseworthy or blameworthy is born with us. So there's nothing to make us praiseworthy in our birth, but yet there's also nothing to make us blameworthy in our birth. It is rather, I continue the quote, it is rather done by us, for we are born with capacity for either, but provided with neither. Did you catch that? Pelagius says, we are born with capacity for either, but provided neither. Close quote. This is the teaching of Pelagius and those Pelagians who follow his teaching then and now. Modern humanism and ancient Pelagianism have much in common. Pelagianism is still alive and well today in the church, despite the efforts of men like Augustine, who rightly opposed this doctrine, this belief as heretical. It is still here under many different names and forms, not the least of which appearing Christian and supposedly orthodox. It is here because the sinful nature of fallen man from which it comes is still here. The fall is still present with us. That's why we pray for sick and suffering every week. Because sickness and suffering is de and death is a product of the fall. 
It doesn't mean you got sick because you committed some sin. It means sickness comes because of sin that permeates the creation that is awaiting its deliverance from sin. And that deliverance will come one day. So let's look at humanism and God's grace. Humanism and the grace of God. Does man need God's grace? Or does man simply need to reach the untapped potential of his own greatness and his own goodness that Pelagius says we have the capacity for? And the humanists today say, we also have the capacity for that. You may think you know the answer to that question, but the belief and practice of many in the church today would do more than give us pause, or it should do more than give us pause. It should be a call to action to preach the gospel of God's grace in Christ loud and clear and not be ashamed of it. Humanism, which is the heresy of Pelagius and the Pelagians, has come to permeate much of what was once called the evangelical church. Humanism and the grace of God do not walk together. They do not go hand in hand. They are, in fact, opposed to one another. Just as the gospel of Pelagius was opposed to the gospel of Christ. Pelagius preached another gospel. And if you do not believe there are other gospels today, open your eyes and open your ears and hear not just what the culture, we like to say the culture, the culture, the culture. No, don't pay attention to what the culture says, but you should pay attention to what the church is saying. And there are many in the church today who are just as humanistic, just as Pelagianistic as Pelagius was, or the, the most God-hating humanist is today. Humanism places man and his capacity for self-sufficiency in the central position as supreme being rather than God in his sovereignty. In humanism, man is his own savior. Thus, humanism nullifies not only the need for God's grace, it nullifies God himself. Humanism promotes the idea that within the untapped potential of our collective humanity, given enough time and effort in the evolutionary process, man possesses all that is necessary for humanity's salvation. This is not a spiritual salvation from sin and death, for there is no biblical concept of sin in humanism. Humanism's salvation is a completely natural and materialistic salvation for a completely natural and materialistic hope. That's what the world wants you to find is a completely naturalistic and material hope. Not a spiritual hope, not an eternal hope. They want to bottle and sell this hope to you they want to tax you to produce this hope. They want to make you so dependent on them that you have no 
other place to turn but to them to find this hope. And they will teach you how to uncover and, and tap into that unlimited capacity you have as a human. You don't believe that? Go to any bookstore and peruse the shelves and see what's there. And it doesn't even have to be a secular bookstore. You can go to a lot of Christian bookstores if they still exist. Or you go online to your bookstore. No, I don't know how many people go to bookstores anymore. Um, but go and look and peruse and see what's out there. The need for God and His grace is a foreign concept in a humanistic worldview. Humanism promotes the belief that man is fundamentally good with untapped and near limitless potential. Humanism promotes the idea that if man will correctly shape humanity, humanity will shape itself and society and its destiny in a way that will ultimately maximize all of man's untapped potential and inherent good. Man simply needs to uncover and tap into the resources of his own humanity. That implies the goodness of man, but the Scripture teaches otherwise. There is none good but one, that is God. Those are the words of Jesus Christ recorded for us in Matthew 19, 17, Mark 10, 18, and Luke 18, 19. When Jesus is interacting with the rich young ruler who says, good teacher, Jesus stops him and says, why do you call me good? There is only one good, and that is God. Those are the words of Christ recorded for us in the Gospels. Jesus and his word teaches us that there is only one who is good, and that is God. As a result of that fall, as a result of the fall apart from Christ, man does not have any inherent goodness or even greatness in himself. In fact, man is totally depraved. Paul echoes Jesus in the Word of God when he writes in Romans 3.12, there is none who does good, no, not one. Thus, we have no hope apart from God's grace. Man's hope does not come from any potential for good within himself, our only hope is in the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Today in modern evangelicalism, humanism has permeated and shapes much of the belief and practice of the church. While acknowledging the need for God's grace, many Christians want to maintain that there is some goodness, some spark of life, something inherently good or even great in man. This erroneous belief hopes in an inherent goodness that man does not possess. It incorrectly believes that God in His grace partners with man, wrongfully assuming God's grace plus man's work equals salvation. That's what the reformers railed against in terms of their protest to the church at Rome. They said, there is nothing we can add to 
the finished work of Christ. There is nothing we can add to our salvation that contributes to our own salvation. That is a fatally flawed formula. Assuming that God's grace plus man's work equals salvation. God does not partner with man in salvation. Jesus plus anything adds nothing to the finished work of Christ. In fact, it subtracts from it. The question becomes this. Is man completely fallen and totally depraved? Or is there an island of righteousness, a measure of virtue in man? Do we need God's grace entirely or mostly? Can man save and satisfy himself in partnership with God? Or do we rightly say, apart from God's grace alone, we have no hope? Those are important questions we should ask ourselves. The reformers asked those questions. And they've given us a rich heritage in the doctrines of grace that are the doctrines of the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible answers these questions. And the biblical answer to these questions is that apart from God's grace alone, we have no hope. Man cannot save himself and God does not need to partner with man to achieve man's salvation. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world and not with our permission, I might add. And not because he saw some measure of good in us or saw our future faith that would look to him and trust in him and ask that he come into our heart. That's not why God saved you. God's grace alone in the finished work of Christ alone is alone sufficient. We need God's grace entirely, not mostly, because man is not mostly, but entirely fallen and totally depraved. And he needs God's grace, and God's grace alone can save him. The condition of humanity and the need for God's grace is clearly presented throughout the Scripture. Hear the grace of God from the Word of God. I read it to you earlier, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. Let me read this again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. God chose us in him according to the good pleasure of his will. 
not ours. It was His grace, not what we deserved. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Let me read that again. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And in parentheses, just so that we don't miss it, Paul writes, by grace you have been saved. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world according to His good pleasure And God made us alive together with Christ, not because of our love for Him, but because of His great love for us. I pray you do love Him now with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all that is within you, I pray that you love Him. But you did not when He saved you. And neither did I. We were his enemies, hostily opposed to him when he made us alive and saved us in Christ. Man cannot evolve into his greatest potential. That's what the world teaches us. That's what the public school is teaching our children today. We look around and we watch the news and we read the headlines and we I've heard countless people ask this question. What happened to our kids? Well, I'll tell you what happened to them. The government school system is what happened to them. They've been indoctrinated for decades, and we should not wonder why they're protesting to kill the Jews and to save the murderers. We should not be wondering why they are violently protesting for their right to continue to violently murder children. Innocent, unborn children. We don't even think about that one anymore. We've we've bought into that so hook, line, and sinker, we don't even think about abortion anymore for the most part. It's just a political issue now. It's transcended. I mean, I've had this conversation with pastors. They consider it a political issue, not a spiritual issue. They would not dare address it from their pulpits because it's too political. Same with the LBGTQ issues. Oh, we can't address that from our pulpit. It's too political. It may offend somebody. And I'm like, Pastor? Do you read your Bible? Is Jesus not called the rock of offense? The stumbling stone over which they stumbled? Does the scripture not say, if you don't fall on the rock and be broken, the rock will fall on you and grind you to powder? What would you rather have? No, man will never evolve into his greatest potential. I don't care how many books say it. I don't care how many preachers say it. I don't care how many professors say it. It's not going to happen. 
The only hope that man has is to be born again by the grace of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 14. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. How did you receive him? You received him by grace. That's how you received him. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Jesus, in his famous declaration to Nicodemus, who came to him by night, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you ever wondered why Jesus said that there? Unless a man is born again. Why didn't Jesus say, unless a man pray really hard? Unless a man work really hard? Unless a man believe really hard? Unless a man lives a really good life and wants it really bad, he can't be born again. He can't see the kingdom of God. He can't see the kingdom of God. No, Jesus said, unless a man is born again. Do you see what Jesus did right there? Jesus took the new birth away from you and away from me and put it firmly where it belongs in his hands. Here is the Lord's sovereign grace. To be born again is something only God in his grace can bring about. Let me ask you, Christian, did you cause yourself to be born? I'm not talking about spiritually. I'm talking about physically. Who here caused yourself to be born? Who here filled out the form before your birth telling mom and dad what you wanted to be named, how tall you wanted to be, how much hair you wanted to have, what color, what color eyes, all the characteristics you wanted. How many of you filled that form out before you were birthed out of your mama's womb? Oh, wait, none of us. In other words, you and I had absolutely zero to do with our birth in the natural. Why do we believe when Jesus said, unless a man is born again, Why do we believe we somehow have some control over our spiritual birth, an even greater birth that gives to us greater promises and a life eternal that will never, ever, ever be taken from us? Have you ever thought about that? Man cannot cause himself to be birthed from the womb And man cannot cause himself to be born again from above. To be born again is a clear picture of God's sovereign grace, and it is by grace alone. It is in no way a picture of man's free will. There is no such thing as free will. There isn't. Man's will is not free. It is bound and enslaved, this is not my words, this is what the Bible teaches, it is bound and enslaved by sin and death until it is liberated by God's grace in Jesus Christ and brought under the will of God by the Spirit of God. Even 
as a new creation in Christ, your will is not free. Your will is to be submitted. It is to be in subjection to the will of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means to walk under the submission and the subjection to the will of God. By the Spirit of God. We are not saved by works, but we are called to work in His grace. There is no work that contributes to our salvation, but there absolutely needs to be work that accompanies our salvation. Your life and my life is to look as though we are children of God. We have been born again. We do have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And that fruit of the Spirit is to come out of our lives as a witness to the world. Romans eleven six, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Paul's talking about salvation here. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If I can be saved by working to get there, then I don't need grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul writes. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul said, I worked harder than any of the other apostles, any of the other believers. But it wasn't me who was working, it was the grace of God in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. And how did you believe? By grace, you believed. Yes, through faith. That faith came to you by grace. Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And I promise you, church, Christ did not die in vain. He absolutely accomplished the salvation of his people. Not the opportunity for salvation, but the salvation, which was signified when he says, it is finished. The same grace that saved us before time began will keep us for eternity. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40. This is the will of the Father who sent me, the words of Christ, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, 
but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will, not I might, not I may, not I hope to, but I will raise him up at the last day. Again, the words of Christ in John chapter 10, verses 26 through 30. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I've had Christians say to me, yeah, no one can snatch them from the Father's hand, but they can jump out if they want to. That doesn't even deserve a response. Again, the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 28 and 30 a verse you're very well familiar with. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. You notice the past tense language there. Thus, the words of Jesus, it is finished. Past tense. What then shall we say, Paul goes on to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more. Hear me, church. Hear the word of the Lord. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise be to God. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he has perfected us 
forever. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In John 17, we see Jesus pray the Father that none are lost and that all are kept secure. We are saved by his grace and we persevere by his grace. He perseveres us in his grace. What God saves, he will not lose. And if you are in Christ, it is grace alone that has saved you. Yes, through faith, but it is by grace and it is by grace alone. Now, may you manifest the fruit of his spirit through the eternal life of Christ that has been freely given to you by his grace. If you are not trusting in Jesus, then call upon his name and he will save you and give to you his abundant and eternal life. And you will receive that abundant and eternal life by his grace. Not by any merit of your own. Not by any work you can do. Not by any latent desire God saw in you before the foundations of the world. No. You are here today in Christ because it was the good pleasure of his will by which he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. And when we begin to understand the grace of God properly from a biblical point of view, it will motivate you to holiness. It won't give you license to sin. It will not make you want to sin. It will make you want to be holy as your God is holy. Because it is the holy God who has saved you holy in both senses of the word. He has wholly saved you by his grace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it is grace that gives us the invitation to come to this table each week. And it is a celebration of that grace. I will remind you, you have been called by him to worship. You have confessed your sin and you have received the assurance of pardon. So come to this table of his to drink his wine and eat his bread ready to celebrate that grace. Don't come with your head down, feeling sad and sorry for yourself because of all your sin. Come rejoicing that by His grace, Christ has taken that sin, has atoned for that sin, and has taken the very wrath that belonged to you and belonged to me upon Himself. And now He invites you to come into His presence to commune with Him so that you can be renewed and refreshed and go back out into this world and proclaim the glorious gospel of His grace to those who need to hear its message. Amen? Amen. Christian, as you trust in Jesus, young and old, you are welcome to this table. Please stand for your charge.
as God commissions you now to go back into this world taking his glorious gospel. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, that we have been saved and called with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. God has given to you, by his own purpose and grace, a calling, and you are to walk in that. You were saved and called according to his own purpose, his own grace by which was given to you in Christ before time began. Notice what did save you and notice what did not save you. You did not save yourself, nor did you add to any part or measure of Christ's saving work. He alone did save you through the finished work of his cross His finished work is applied to you by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. It is by grace alone you have been saved. Take no credit for yourself. Give all the glory to God and go and spread that glorious good news of His grace, even today. Amen? Amen. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all... Blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Have a great day.